This is Guns and Butter. U.S.'s liberty attack created a, was a pattern. You know, it was a false flag attack. It failed, but the purpose was to draw the United States on the side of Israel against Egypt, so against the Arab world. So it was exactly the same purpose as uh, was 9/11. The purpose was to draw um, American uh, uh, military power against all the enemies of uh, Israel. And at that time, Egypt was the most powerful enemy in 1963. Then in, in 2001, the, it was Iraq and uh, Syria and uh, Iran and so on. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Laurent Guillenot. Today's show, 9-11, Access, Means and Motive. Laurent Guillenot is an author, researcher and journalist. His current research focuses on the religious and civilizational backgrounds of Zionist geostrategy. His books that have been translated into English include JFK to 9-11, 50 Years of Deep State, and From Yahweh to Zion, Jealous God, Chosen People, Promised Land, Clash of Civilizations. Today we discuss his article, The 9-11 Double Cross Theory, Pentagon Inside Job, World Trade Center Israeli job that analyzes the September 11th attacks at the New York World Trade Center with a focus on evidence of who had opportunity, means, and motive. I'm glad we're able to continue our discussion about the catastrophic events on September 11th. Thank you, Bonnie, for inviting me for a third time. Well, it's a delight. We've talked about your unique analysis of 9-11 as essentially two separate but related events, the attack in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon, as opposed to the attacks in New York City. Let's talk about means and opportunity, particularly Mm -hmm. with regard to the New York City Twin Towers that exploded on that day. How was the privatization of World Trade Center buildings 1, 2, and 7 accomplished? This privatization deal was finalized, I believe, only six weeks before September 11th. Yeah, that's right. It was finalized six weeks before 9-11 when uh, Larry Silverstein um signed the lease of the tower I, I don't really know the details of the contract he was not exactly the owner of the of the towers he was a, it was a kind of a leasing contract but anyway that didn't really make a, any difference and his partner with it was uh, Frank Lowy so uh he had help you know in order to get that contract he had uh, a lot of help from uh, different people who uh, made it possible for him to get the towers. But anyway, uh, I think there was no, (laughs) he he didn't have any competitor because nobody really wanted those towers because as everybody knows, they were loaded with about 400 tons of asbestos 
and uh, there was no way to get rid of this asbestos, uh, either by destroying the towers or by cleaning it uh, out. You know, it was estimated to $1 billion or something like this. So I think uh, everybody in New York City felt relieved when when uh, Larry Silverstein took the responsibility for that. So, yeah, the, the point about uh, Israel uh, being... Uh, uh, in control of the Twin Towers through people like Larry Silverstein, because Larry Silverstein is a really a, a man connected to the highest level of the leadership in Israel. He was a friend of Benjamin Netanyahu, but also of Ehud Barak. He was a, even a business partner of Ehud Barak. This was published, printed in the Arabs newspaper, I think, uh, um, a few weeks after 9-11, there was this incredible uh, article in Aretz uh, revealing that uh, Netanyahu called uh, uh, Silverstein every Sunday, <laughs> uh, which is really uh, quite amazing. And uh, we makes us wonder what they were talking about every Sunday. Uh, so, yeah, the, the point about those two scenarios is, as I think we, we talked about already, that when you look at the World Trade Center, you see, you know, the fingerprints of uh, what I would call super Zionism, people who are deeply committed to Israel and who have, uh, um, you know, all the control of the Twin Towers and the Tower 7, you know, and Larry Silverstein called them his three towers. And so they had all the opportunity, the means and the opportunity to to uh, wire these towers with explosives and create what we saw on 9-11, which was not the collapse of the Twin Towers, but really the explosions of the Twin Towers. You know, the word, the very word collapse is very misleading because when you look at the pictures, you see it's, they're not collapsing at all. They are just exploding floor by floor. So I think everybody in the, you know, in the 9-11 truth movement would agree that the planes, whatever planes there were or, or there were not, whatever, whatever happened in the, in the early morning when we saw these explosions in the Twin Towers, that had nothing to do with the, with the, the cause of the, of the explosions, uh, of the, the destruction of the Twin Towers themselves. These were wired with explosives. And there's still a lot of questions. I don't have the answers about what kind of explosive there were. Some people think it must have been some kind of nuclear device because otherwise with classic, even military uh, uh, high-tech explosive, it would have needed, uh, you know, thousands of tons of explosives. And uh, it's difficult to imagine that, uh, you know, how, how to bring all these uh, explosive in the tower. So we don't know exactly how they did it, but we know who was in control and who was uh, capable of doing it. And uh, Larry Silverstein is certainly the, the main um, uh, orchestrator of this uh, event, or at least he, he, uh, he opened the doors to whoever, you know, prepared these, uh, the event itself. You write that those who had the means to bring down the Twin Towers and Tower 7 were those mm -hmm. who owned these towers and controlled access to them. So you've mentioned uh, Larry Silverstein's lease and the mm -hmm. man that he was working with uh, to get the lease. Yeah. So they obviously could control the access. What about companies and business executives that occupied the Twin Towers. Is there evidence of involvement by the tenants in the attacks on the buildings? 
Well, one, uh, at least we know of one Israeli company called Zim Israel Navigational. And it's a big um, um, transport uh, company with, um, I think, 50% owned by Israel state. And it's uh, kind of known as a, as a Mossad. Um, uh, it's known as a, not a Mossad front because uh, they're not just working for Mossad, but they would um, uh, facilitate Mossad operation. And uh, very strangely, they moved from the um, uh, the World Trade Center. I forgot if it's the North or the South Tower. Just one week before the attacks. And that that is itself very suspicious because you know they they declared they moved from there to to save money, and uh, there was this uh, comment by the CEO Shaul Cohen Mintz who said, "Well, it was just like an act of God, you know, that we moved uh, from this tower." So that's one very suspicious uh, uh, company in the Twin Towers, and another one would be um, um, yeah, Mar- Martin McLennan. Uh, they they were occupying the floors 93 to 100 in the North Tower, the second uh, tower that was hit. And that was precisely the floors where uh, an American airline Boeing supposedly crashed in the North Tower. And that is uh, a strange coincidence because, well, in the, in the hypothesis that... Uh, you know, whatever hit or didn't hit the towers, the explosions were probably not created by by any plane, but were uh, uh, prepared from inside. And what is uh, what is strange is that the Martin McLennan, the CEO of that company, was Jeffrey Greenberg, and Jeffrey Greenberg is uh, the son of Maurice Hank Greenberg, who was the insurer of the Twin Towers. So after uh, Larry Silverstein bought the towers, he insured those towers with Maurice Greenberg. And Maurice Greenberg reinsured the contract with another competitor so that he wouldn't have to spend any money after the towers were destroyed. So this Greenberg family is also, uh, in my view, part of this uh, super cyanim. And there are other people too. There is Ronald Lauder, who was the chairman of the New York State Privatization Commission. And that's him who made it possible for Larry Silverstein to uh, to lease the tower. And Ronald Lauder is a very, very prominent uh, uh, Jewish person who is very much involved in uh, in all kinds of Israeli institutions. He was the president of the World Jewish Congress. And so, you know, all those people are really people who are deeply committed to Israel and deeply connected to to the to the Likud leaders like Netanyahu, Ehud uh, Barak and uh, such people. So yeah, that's uh, anyway, you asked me about those companies that were um, that had their office in the Twin Towers, so we can think of those two. Uh, I haven't found any other um, you know there's a there, it's quite mysterious who who was really in the Twin Towers, what offices were occupied. Some people would say, actually, most of the office space was empty. I haven't been able to check that, but there, there is a rumor that actually uh, not so many companies were uh, working, had offices at this time in the Twin Towers. There are, you know, diverging viewpoints about, you know, also how many people really died in Twin Towers. So we probably should not get into that. But, you know, there's still a lot of questions and a lot of uh, diverging viewpoint on uh, such uh, issues. 
Yeah. Uh, Greenberg, Maurice Greenberg was also uh, at the head. He, he took control in, uh, in the 1990s. In 1993, I think, he took control of Kroll Incorporated, which provided the security throughout the World Trade Center complex. So he was a key, that was a key company. You know, Kroll Incorporated is sometimes called a, a private CIA. It's a very, very extensive, very powerful company specializing in, uh, in spying and security. So they, they were probably uh, very important in the preparation of, uh, of 9-11. You have mentioned cyanim or helpers. What does this term refer to? Well, I think the term became uh, popularized through uh, Viktor Ostrovsky's book, By Way of Deception. Viktor Ostrovsky was a, a former Mossad agent who defected and uh, lived, I think, uh, in uh, Canada. I'm not sure, but I think it was in Canada under another identity. And he published this book and a few and a few books after that. I think it was in the 80s. And so he explained that the Mossad, how the Mossad works in different countries. And he explained that in Europe and in the United States in particular, but also in the Arab world, uh, there are thousands of Jews who are um, in all kinds of positions, you know, all kinds of uh, professions, and who have been contacted by the Mossad and who are like sleeping agent. And whenever the Mossad would need some kind of service from uh, one or the other, uh, then they would they would give a hand to the Mossad. They would do something illegal to help the Mossad without asking too many questions, and if possible, you know, by being retributed in some way or other. And so, um, you know, these signings can be in any kind of position. They can be uh, in the government, they can be in private businesses, they can be working in airports, they can be, you know, they, they can be lawyers or doctors or uh, whatever. And, and also the, the theme has become also uh, explored by another British author called uh, Gordon Thomas, who wrote a book called Gideon's... Uh, Gideon Spy or something. Anyway, he, he was a very important uh, investigator about the Mossad. And he, he put forward the number of 15,000 Sayanim in the United States. Sayanim is a plural of Sayan. It's a Hebrew term. I don't remember what's the meaning of Sayan uh, in, in Hebrew, but it uh, doesn't matter. So you can imagine 15,000 Sayanim in the United States, people who are dedicated and would even maybe risk their career or do something really illegal, take some risk uh, to support Israel. So if you think of uh, Larry Silverstein as a, as a top-level Sayanim, then, uh, you know, it's perfectly understandable. You know, the, these people are completely dedicated to the state of Israel. So if uh, they are asked to give a hand for something, and if plus at the same time can do some kind of profit, as we know Larry Silverstein uh, did, then, uh, you know, there's no, no difficulty to imagine uh, why people like that would, uh, would cooperate with the operation of 9-11, you know, which, which I think was coordinated, you know, between Tel Aviv and New York. I'm speaking with author, researcher, and journalist Laurent Guillenot. Today's show, 9-11, Access, Means, and Motive. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
What do we know about the Israeli Art Students Project in the United States leading up to the events of 9-11? Um, yeah, there, there are two, uh, well, there, there are two different uh, topics with our students. One is uh, all these uh, Israeli agents who were arrested uh, before 9-11, in the few months before 9-11, 140 of them, and then uh, 60 after 9-11. Are you talking about these these art students or the ones who were doing some kind of project inside the Twin Towers? Well, both, because apparently okay. there were art students, so-called art students, situated within the Twin Towers. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, but then mm. there were art students that were going around the country... Yeah, um, I don't know if they are connected actually these two groups because the groups uh, that um, that were inside the twin towers, I think inside the the, um, the north tower actually, uh, there are two groups called Gelatine and E Team, Gelatine and E Team, and it's not very clear exactly if those two groups are one group or two separate groups. But they occupied the, the floors where the, the, the plane supposedly crashed into the North Tower. And so uh, they published their, uh, I think they have even a website where you can see they made some strange, ugly drawings. I mean, it's very difficult to understand what they were doing, but it seems like what they were doing, or at least uh, what they claim to be doing, is doing some artwork uh, and part of their artwork was to create a wooden balcony outside of one floor on the South Tower, some balcony that was, you know, quite small. So there are a couple of pictures of it, but it's, it's hard to see it. Anyway, uh, there are pictures of them wearing, uh, uh, you know, so some uh, something, I don't know how you call it in English, when you do uh, climbing, you know, rock climbing. So some of them were uh, doing things out of the Twin Towers. And, uh, you know, there is a strong possibility that what they were really doing is preparing the explosives for the, the explosion that simulated the crash of the airplane, the crash that uh, was filmed by the No Day Brothers. And then another group was called E-Team. And uh, we don't know, I don't know exactly what they were doing, but at least one night they, they managed to light uh, you know, the windows of the Twin Towers on the on the floors they were working on, and there appeared the, the, their, their name, E-Team. So uh, all these floors, I think they occupied about eight floors, precisely the floors where the, where the plane crashed. Uh, it's not very clear if these floors were empty or there were companies working in, uh, in these offices, but at least on, the, on one facade of the Twin Towers, they, they were... It's very mysterious what they were doing, but, you know, there's the theory that they were a part of the, of the technical teams uh, responsible for wiring the explosives, at least to, to simulate the, the plane crashes, if you, if you uh, believe that no planes hit the Twin Towers. Of course, if you believe some planes hit the Twin Towers, then it's difficult to understand what they were doing. Well, what about the Israeli art students that were canvassing the country and going to American American government agencies? I even know of someone locally here in Northern California who worked at a travel agency mm -hmm. 
And he said that the art students came in there for some reason. Do you know anything about that other group of art students? Well, yeah. I mean, many people have uh, heard about uh, these uh, students. So they were mentioned actually in in a four-part documentary broadcast on Fox News made by Carl Cameron, which is very, very difficult now to find on YouTube. It has been erased from a Fox News uh, website. And uh, this was uh, broadcast actually in December 2001, so very, very shortly after September 11. It's a very important document because it's the only uh, you know, extensive investigation on these uh, Israelis' uh, spy. And uh, it was not reported in uh, anywhere else. And he documented uh, the fact that um, uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, I don't know exactly why they they were responsible for that, but they they compiled a report about all these uh, Israeli students who had been arrested here and there. And uh, strangely, they, they presented themselves as art students when, whenever they were, uh, you know, arrested. But the fact is, they visited mostly. They visited at least 36 sensitive sites of the Department of Defense, according to the DEA report. And uh, many of them, you know, uh, it was found out that they served in military intelligence or electronic uh, signal intercept or, you know, they were specialists in explosives or somewhere, um, you know, closely connected to uh, Israeli army. And so uh, it's very difficult to understand what they were doing. I don't exactly know what they were doing, trying to spy the general uh, hypothesis is that they were trying to spy on people working in uh, American defense. Um, it's a little bit mysterious. I don't know. I don't have any clear uh, uh, explanation for what they were really doing. Surely they were doing something in connection with 9-11, perhaps collecting information on all kinds of people working in the defense department. That's a possibility because they also appeared in a private residence of a of um, you know military officers and this kind of thing, so they might have you know tried to gather information in order to um, you know to compromise or to blackmail people. I I don't know. Uh, it's difficult to know what they were doing, but it's also possible that their even their their um, activity as spy might have been it's, itself some kind of cover. I mean, you know, they had discovered as Israeli art students, but maybe the fact that they were finally arrested and considered as spy maybe is itself some kind of cover. Maybe, maybe they were, um, you know, involved in a more uh, uh, technical aspect of, uh, you know, connected to the explosion of the Twin Towers. That's a possibility. When do you think plans for 9-11 began? I'm referring particularly to the plans for the attack on the buildings in New York. Well, I think there are different levels. We can uh, we can look at it in different ways. I think uh, the more I study the, you know, the Kennedy story and 9-11 and the more I see the connection between, I, I, I tend now to think that... Uh, plans for taking control of complete control of American foreign and military policy started under Lyndon Johnson just after 
John Kennedy's assassination. Um, and one thing I was reminded recently, actually, I, I realized that uh, there's something interesting uh, to note about uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who was probably, you know, uh, uh, I, I consider him uh, like a mercenary of uh, of, uh, of the neocons. And uh, recall that on September 22, 1963, so that was just uh, two months before John Kennedy died, he wrote a letter to Robert Kennedy, you know, John Kennedy's uh, attorney general, uh, asking him to give up the the, the procedure against the uh, APAC or or the American Zionist Council because Robert Kennedy was trying to force the American Zionist Council to register as a foreign agent in order to, he wanted uh, the Kennedys wanted to limit the power of uh, the pro-Israel lobby which became APAC. And this procedure was, of course, abandoned after Kennedy was uh, assassinated. But it's interesting to, to know that Donald Rumsfeld himself wrote a letter to protest against that attempt in 1963. So you have Donald Rumsfeld in 1963 and uh, the same Donald Rumsfeld in 2001 uh, in uh, the Pentagon, you know, during 9-11. That's just one detail which shows that, you know, there is a, there is a continuity between those two things. But uh, I think uh, the USS Liberty is a very important uh, event, the attack of Israel on the USS Liberty in, during the Six-Day War in 1967, because uh, after that, uh, basically Johnson uh, gave Israel all that they wanted, and uh, I think at that time, uh, the USS Liberty attack created a, was a pattern. You know, it was a false flag attack. It failed, but the purpose was to draw the United States on the side of Israel against Egypt, so against the Arab world. So it was exactly the same purpose as uh, was 9-11. The purpose was to draw um, American uh, uh, military power against all the enemies of uh, Israel. And at that time, Egypt was the most uh, most uh, powerful enemy in 1963. Then in, in 2001, the, it was Iraq and uh, Syria and uh, Iran and so on. But, you know, what failed in 1967 uh, succeeded somehow in 2001. And so you can imagine that from 1967 on, the plan started to to be elaborated to to do something to do something bigger and more efficient and uh, more, uh, you know, uh, with better preparation. But in more technical terms, I think I suppose I imagine the the preparation for 9/11 really started in the 1990s. And uh, considering the close connection between Benjamin Netanyahu and the neoconservatives and also Larry Silverstein and this kind of a New York uh, cyanim, uh, it is, uh, in my view, logical to think that Benjamin Netanyahu was a, a key person in, uh, in the, the preparation uh, the planning of this operation from the 1990s. We should not forget that Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, he studied in the United States. He spent, I think, 20 or 30 years in the United States. So he's exactly very much like the neocons, the neoconservative. The only difference is that he doesn't have any American citizenship. You know, but he's just part of the same world as Paul Wolfovich and uh, Richard Pearl and all these kind of people. 
And if he called Larry Silverstein every Sunday, it's quite possible to, to imagine they, well, they probably didn't talk about this kind of plan on the telephone, but uh, it's easy to imagine that he, he was part of the, the planners of 9-11. So I, uh, yeah, I can imagine it started in 1990. But then there is, there is this uh, strange prophecy. You know, we have to look at prophecy. Jewish elite people, they like to make prophecies, you know. <laughs> so uh, we have Benjamin Netanyahu, who in 1995, in one of his books, he wrote uh, three books warning Americans about, uh, about the danger of uh, Islamist um, jihadists. And in 1995, in his book, he, he prophesied that they would destroy the Twin Towers. And then he bragged about it on CNN in 2006. He said, you know, I told you they would, they would do that. They would bring down the Twin Towers. So, you know, in 1996, if we think he was not just a prophet, but he was, uh, he was just uh, predicting what he knew was in preparation, then, then uh, 1995 could be a starting point. But we have another prophet who made a similar prophecy in 1990, and that's Isel Arel. He was uh, head of the Mossad uh, in I think in the 70s, and he was interviewed one time in 1980s by by a Christian Zionist. I forgot his name, and he said he said that uh, Arab uh, jihadists would one day hit your most important phallic symbol. And he said, your phallic symbol in America is the tallest building you have in America. So indirectly, he was targeting the the World Trade Center. So that was in 1980. So, you know, there probably were already people thinking that would be a good idea to hit the Twin Towers. I'm speaking with author, researcher, and journalist Laurent Guillenot. Today's show, 9-11, Access, Means, and Motive. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Is there historical evidence of Israeli false flag operations. Now, you've mentioned the USS Liberty. There's a whole history of this, though, isn't there? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, actually, I'm reading at this moment, I'm reading uh, Ronan uh, Bergman's book called Rise and Kill First. It's about targeted killing uh, in the history of Israel by secret services of all kinds. So it's not about false flag attacks, but he mentions, he shows that he actually... uh, you know, in the Israeli collective mind, collective psyche, which is basically, you know, the, the mentality of the elites, because in any nation is, uh, you know, the dominant mentality is uh, the mentality of the people who, who rule the country. You know, they have this uh, uh, this idea that there's no limit to what uh, they are supposed to do to create their country and to protect their country and to expand their country. So, false flag operation has always been part of the of the standard uh, operation mode. You know, to mostly draw the West, the Western powers, on their side against uh, against the Muslim world, against their enemies. And uh, it started by trying to draw the, the British against uh, Arabs. So the most uh, the first well-documented false flag attack was the um, 
the bombing of the King David Hotel. It was in 1940, let's see, 1946. So the King David Hotel was the British headquarter in Jerusalem. At the time, the British were still, Palestine was still under the British mandate. But the uh, Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion and the uh, the proto-Zionists, the Zionists wanted the British to leave because the British were limiting immigration of uh, Jewish people in Palestine. So they uh, bombed the King David Hotel. You know, they uh, they were dressed as Arabs and the plan was to blame the Arabs for this bombing. But, you know, it didn't go well, so uh, they were uh, identified as Jews. And uh, close to 100 people died in this bombing, and the whole building was destroyed. So, well, partly, not completely. So that's, uh, you know, that's a typical false flag attack. You know, they create uh, the bombing of a British building, killing British people, and trying to blame it on uh, on the Arabs. And uh, there were also other operations in the 1950s, when uh, they were trying, the Israelis were trying to prevent uh, Nasser from uh, getting control of the Suez Canal. So I think in 1956, the British had agreed to give back the canal to to Egypt. But uh, Israelis uh, didn't want the British to leave Egypt and didn't want the Suez Canal to be controlled by uh, by Nasser. So they tried to, all, again, create uh, all kind of terror attacks and bombings against British targets in Egypt in order to blame them on uh, Egyptian nationalists or the uh, Muslim Brotherhood or these kind of groups in order to kind of discredit Nasser and to disrupt the process and and give a pretext to the British to stay in Egypt and to keep control of the, of the Suez Canal. And then, uh, you know, of course, this failed again because some of these uh, Jewish people um, pretending to be Arabs were arrested and identified as uh, Israeli agent. That became known as the Lavon Affair from the name of the Israeli minister who kind of took the blame. His name was Lavon, I forgot the, his first name. And there are other, you know, false flag uh, attacks, you know, the Israelis bombed um, their own embassies in some countries, in London, I think it was in the 1980s. Uh, you know, there's been a couple of cases of Israeli embassies which were bombed and with the purpose of blaming uh, Arab terrorists. But, uh, you know, strong suspicions that uh, the Israelis themselves bombed their own embassies. So, yes, it's part of the culture of uh, Israel. It's part of the, the, the way of deception that they, they use to, to always try to, well, mostly to draw the British or now to draw the Americans on their side, against their enemies. This was uh, clearly the purpose of, uh, of 9-11. Did the U.S. benefit in any way from the 9-11 wars that essentially destroyed the Middle East? Well, no, I think um, no one benefited. Uh, wherever, actually, uh, 
The Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, just a few days ago said exactly that in the United Nations uh, General Assembly. He said, you know, look at all those wars that Americans have been doing everywhere under the you know, the pretext of uh, bringing democracy or freeing people from dictatorship or whatever, you know, everything they did was just create chaos everywhere. Nobody profited from these wars. And certainly Americans themselves did not profit from uh, from any of those wars. Even in some in some way, some people would say, for example, that 9-11, you know, this is what Noam Chomsky said, for example, you know, oh yeah, we went to Iraq, we invaded Iraq, it was for, for the oil, of course, it's obvious, you know. But uh, um, the two authors of the book, uh, the Israel lobby or the pro-Israel lobby, Thing um, Walt and Mersheimer, they demonstrated this is completely false. There was no profit from the American oil industry from the Iraq war because everybody who is in the oil business just want to to have uh, commercial relationships with the countries that have oil. They don't need chaos. They, they don't mind having dictators at the head of these countries. What they want is to be able to trade and to have a good deal, with, you know, to get the oil at a good price. Uh, so war has never been uh, something that uh, the oil industry has been pushing for. Uh, nowhere, not in Iraq, not in Iran. Uh, they they don't like sanctions either. They want to be able to trade freely with those countries. So there's no evidence whatsoever that uh, America profited in any way from the wars that followed 9-11, uh, which cost America, according to some authors, uh, something like uh, $3 trillion. Uh, so the only country that profited from these wars were Israel. And uh, all the countries that the neocons were targeting after 9-11 were enemies of Israel. So it's very clear, you know, that uh, the, the whole purpose, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's almost so, so obvious, so evident that, you know, after 9-11, America was pulled to destroy all the countries that are the enemies of uh, Israel. You know, uh, Iraq was uh, the, the most, uh, um, Saddam Hussein was one of the most outspoken critic of Israel. And then uh, uh, Colonel Gaddafi of uh, Libya also, and Syria and Lebanon, and all these seven countries, you know, that uh, Wesley Clark mentioned that were targeted only two months after 9-11. Uh, by Paul Wolfowicz, they were exactly the seven nations that uh, Israel wanted to to destroy and to and to uh, break up and to to put in a state of civil war so that you know there would not be a, a danger for Israel anymore. And the the destruction of Libya by well, really NATO, but then it was under. Nicolas Sarkozy in France, didn't they lead the military attack on Libya? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, well, Sarkozy, in some way, uh, can be identified as a neoconservative. I think Sarkozy, uh, you know, even before he became president, he went to he went to the United States and he had the long uh, um, discussions with George Bush and his entourage. And I think uh, he 
must have made some kind of secret deal with the neocons in the in the United States, and uh, in exchange of their help uh, to get to the presidency. Sarkozy is really, a, you know, um, many people would consider him a very intelligent but very, uh, how would you say, um, a man without any scruple. So uh, I think he 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 was uh, a little bit like Cheney and uh, Donald Rumsfeld. You know, he he completely uh, uh, aligned himself with the neoconservative agenda, and uh, so part of his uh, part of his role was to to attack uh, Libya. He was strongly influenced in that, and that's that's that was uh, that is public uh, knowledge. He was strongly influenced in that by. A guy, a French a Jewish intellectual called Bernard Henri Lévy, whom many people know even abroad, and who has always been pushing for war uh, on behalf of Israel everywhere. And uh, he's one of uh, one of our prominent intellectual. Um, He's a neoconservative. We we have in France actually a group of people who are exactly they they would not call themselves neoconservatives, but they are exactly on the same on the same line. Uh, you know, France is one of the countries I think is the country with the most uh, numerous Jewish population, and uh, Jews are very influential in all kinds of uh, public uh, position. Whereas you know, in the media or in uh, in politics, in uh, in the publishing world and the and the cultural world also. And and that uh, so-called philosopher that you mentioned worked uh, for many years to try and get an attack on Libya started. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He was also very uh, influential in 1991 in the war against Serbia. He really coordinated the, the propaganda campaign to demonize the Serbs and to uh, mobilize public opinion in support of NATO uh, of the NATO attack. That was, by the way, uh, conducted by the same Wesley Clark that we talked about last time. He was the commander of NATO in Europe, uh, commanding the the NATO forces against Serbia. And he has been called by some journalists, you know, the man who almost started World War III. He was incredibly aggressive and ready to even go to war against Russia, if Russia would dare intervene. That was in 1991, I believe. You know, in 1991, uh, Russia was really uh, completely um, powerless. But from that time, the Russians started to realize they have to quickly rearm and become, uh, you know, and it took them 10 years. Or no, it took them 20, 20 years, actually, uh, even, even more, 25 years. But it was the kind of a wake-up call for the, for the Russians, you know, to realize if they, if they don't quickly get back on their feet, NATO will uh, become uh, impossible to control. I'm speaking with author, researcher, and journalist Laurent Guillenot. Today's show, 9-11, Access, Means, and Motive. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is the evidence that the grassroots opposition to the 9-11 wars was controlled or manipulated? Well, in my view, the best evidence is that 
if we didn't have the the 9/11 was an inside job you know kind of a movement that uh, uh, focused on accusing the bush administration of having created 9/11 in order to wage wars uh for you know expanding the american empire or something like this if the opposition had not been dominated by that it would have been transparently clear you know that the 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 only country that that would profit from the clash of civilization you know that was triggered by 9/11 was israel um in in a sense it was natural from day one to think that this was a a way to create the clash of civilization that uh, the neocons had been uh, prophetizing you know already for 10 years you know this famous clash of civilization and so i call this a case of triangulation and triangulation uh, i don't know if the term is used in english but in french what we mean by that is that you know one camp or one uh, group uh, tries to draw two other groups against each other and the group that creates the conflict between those two groups remains invisible and in that case israel is the invisible power that uh, wants to draw the christian world or the western world against the muslim or the arab world in a clash of civilization i mean that should have been the natural scenario to imagine for any kind of a person who who reject the official narrative and if if this uh, uh, notion was completely censored from the 911 truth movement it's because the 911 truth movement was controlled from the very beginning by uh, by Israel to some degree and what specifically is written in the book the clash of civilizations huntington he was not exactly a neoconservative he was more into the tradition of the you know these traditional imperialist who try to to imagine what's going on and to see what's the interest of the american empire in this context and so he was not so much focused on the middle east he was not focused on israel or the middle east he was he's more focused on the the growing power of america and so on but the neoconservatives kind of uh, emphasized and uh, repeated over and over the clash of civilization that is coming with the intention of uh, preparing people when 9/11 would come you know everybody would be told look you know we we just told you this is the clash of civilization arabs are attacking america that's the beginning of the of the clash of civilization so they use this uh, concept to prepare the mind of americans and europeans to to react you know in a, in a pre-programmed way as if the clash of civilization was inevitable and as if 9/11 was a uh, you know some kind of a uh, event uh, that uh, had to happen you have produced a new film 9/11 and israel's great game what would you like to say about this incredible new film that you've produced well what can i say i i wrote the film and it was produced by ertv in uh, france and uh, well I, I try to to summarize uh, as much as possible what i feel is important to to know about uh, 911 
including uh, how it was done, but not, not focusing too much on the technical aspect, you know, uh, because I think this has, you know, a lot of uh, wonderful work has been done on the technical issues by uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, for example. So we are focusing on uh, who, who did it. And so uh, we try to condense all the evidence leading to uh, Israel, some of it we've talked about today, and also trying to um, put 9-11 in a, a, a larger perspective, a historical perspective, uh, to try to understand what is the nature of Israel, what is the, what is the purpose, what is the goal of, uh, of their way to, to create their own history and to draw the whole world into, uh, into creating what they want uh, you know the wars they need in order to, in order to to advance their agenda. What is really the Zionist agenda? Um, because uh, unless we understand, you know, uh, we need to understand that there is a there is a very long, uh, it's a very long term um, goal that they have. You know. It's uh, how how can I explain that? But uh, it's a project. It's a transgenerational project. It's not just a project that uh, appeared in the mind of Benjamin Netanyahu or somebody, and then you know it, it's coming from very far. At the end of the film, I try to explain, uh, especially for taking as example David Ben Gurion, I try to explain why the Bible itself is a, uh, is a pattern and a model. And a, and a national narrative to which, um, you know, leaders of Israel like Ben-Gurion or, or Netanyahu, this is their reference. And uh, it's, difficult to, it's difficult to understand, but on the other hand, it's quite easy to demonstrate because they repeat over and over again, you know, that the Bible is their, is their mandate. You know, uh, this was a, a, a phrase that uh, was used by, I think, Naum Goldman in the 1940s. He said, we don't need a British mandate. The Bible is our mandate. So it's important to read the Bible, not as Christians read it, but as the Jewish and the Israelis read it, and uh, they read it as a, as a program, as a destiny of their people, and um, and uh, what they read in in this program is uh, their destiny to become an empire. So that's the paradox of Zionism. Is Zionism people thought in the 1940s that this was a national project. But more and more, we can uh, we can see it's more than a national project. And the reason why it's more than a national project is also because Israel is is uh, not just a state. You know, with all those synonyms everywhere in the world, Israel is is still a, a worldwide community of people dedicated to the same project. All these kind of things we try to I try to explain in the film so so that people can get a you know, a wider perspective on uh, what's going on, the, the deep geopolitical um, uh, dynamic that we are witnessing, you know, since uh, the last 20 years. How would you describe this biblical project that you mentioned, the biblical project? Um well, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you know, Yahweh 
tell the Jews that they are destined to rule the world, you know. So every nation that does not recognize Israel, uh, Israel's domination, then should be destroyed. This kind of thing you, you read uh, in the Bible. In the Christian world, we are used to to understand these kind of things uh, met metaphorically, or to understand that well, today you know the new Israel is Christianity, and so this does not apply, and so on and so on. But Jews, <laughs> they don't read the Bible like Christians do at all. And so the best example I found, I always find, is uh, David Ben Gurion. This is a good example because David Ben-Gurion was not a religious person, but still he was deeply uh, influenced by the Bible. He, he, he spoke about the Bible all the time. And for example, there are uh, entries in his journal, in his personal journal, when he, when he talks about uh, attacking Egypt, he would say, well, this will be our revenge for what they did to our ancestors, you know, in the biblical times. Even his name, Ben-Gurion, uh, he took uh, the name of a general, well, not exactly from biblical times, but from the time of the war uh, in the first century, when the, when the um, uh, Jewish people in, uh, in Jerusalem rebelled against uh, the Romans. Uh, so this is not exactly in the Bible, but you know, this is uh, ancient history. So his whole mind, his whole vision of his own, of the country he was founding, was based on uh, his vision of the Bible. And even Netanyahu brings up the Bible all the time. All kinds of uh, Israeli uh, leaders, heads of states, mention the Bible all the time. Palestine is their land because it's in the Bible. <laughs> in the first place, that's, a, that's their own reason for claiming Palestine as their, as their land. It's because it's in the Bible. And when they speak to Christians, sometimes they will say, well, God gave us this land, you know. So it doesn't matter, what I try to explain often is that it doesn't really matter if they are religious or not religious. Because in the case of David Ben-Gurion, for example, he was not religious, but the Bible for him was not a religious book. It's a historic, it's a book of history. It's the history of his people. So the book, the Bible can be read as a religious book by religious Jews or as the national narrative by non-religious Jews, and it doesn't really make any difference. This is something that we have difficulty to understand when we come from the Christian, uh, the Christian background, where, you know, uh, religion and history are two different things, but not for the Jews, not in the Jewish tradition. Well, with regard to the biblical stories in the Old Testament, for instance, the uh, escape from Egypt, etc., uh, is there any historical evidence for these stories, or could they just be stories? Well, I, 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 I would tend to say some of it is just stories, and uh, but that doesn't really matter if you want to, to. In order to understand Zionism, it doesn't really matter to 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 know if this is real or not, because for most uh, Jewish people, it's real. Maybe not for, you know, historians in universities, you know, Jewish historians in universities, uh, even in Israel, they would question this. But basically, in the mentality of the leaders, they take it seriously, most of them. 
or if they don't take it seriously personally, at least they take it seriously as uh, as the national narrative, as the you know the the means of keeping the Jewish identity together. So it's it's a little bit like a, the the Khazar hypothesis. You know, some people always bring this to say, well, they are not really they are not really the descendants of people from Palestine. They come from uh, Eastern Europe somewhere, so they have no right to claim Palestine. But I say, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. The point is that they believe they are the descendants of the Jewish people. So <laughs> that's what motivates them, and that's what explains their their behavior. So. We can we can argue that uh, uh, their story is false, but that doesn't really uh, make any any difference. Of course, in my view, anyway, the whole biblical story, some of it has maybe some historical basis. Much of it doesn't have any historical basis. And Yahweh, Yahweh uh, is, a, is a ridiculously grotesque uh, uh, caricature of the divinity for me. You know, I don't take seriously at all Yahweh, and I think many Jews don't. And many Jews understand very clearly that Yahweh is uh, has nothing to do with God. Is just the personification of the uh, of, of the of the destiny that Jewish people decided for themselves. You know, he's a projection. That's that's what the Ben Gurion would say. He say, you know, it's not God who chose the Jews; it's the Jews who chose themselves. So Yahweh is just uh, an image, an image for them of of uh, the Jews deciding that they will win the, the, the game, the geopolitical game, which has to end with one winner, and uh, the winner they decided will be them. That's the way they see, that's the way secular Jews see the, the thing. Well, they, it's a little bit more complicated. You know, they also have this idea that they've been persecuted, so, you know, the whole world owes them uh, this position and so on. There's all, there's all kinds of other elements Laurent Guillenot, thank you. You're welcome, Bonnie. I hope uh, that was helpful. I've been speaking with Laurent Guillenot. Today's show has been 9-11, Access, Means, and Motive. Laurent Guillenot is an author, researcher, and journalist. His current research focuses on the religious and civilizational backgrounds of Zionist geostrategy. His books that have been translated into English include JFK to 9-11, 50 Years of Deep State, and From Yahweh to Zion, Jealous God, Chosen People, Promised Land, Clash of Civilizations. Laurent Guillenot has a degree in engineering, a master's in biblical studies, and pursued his interests in the history and anthropology of religions, earning his doctorate in medieval studies. His articles are posted at uns.com. That's U-N-Z dot com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. It's time that we live in G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? 
Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?